Bible, I would invite you to turn to the Gospel of Mark, the 10th chapter, which is page 716 in the Church Bibles, if that would be of some help to you. Just a second or two, we're going to begin reading in, from verse 32, Mark chapter 10, verse 32, page 716 in our Church Bibles. And just so you know, we have been working through Mark's gospel uh, verse by verse for a little bit now, and so the reason why we're in these verses on this particular Sunday morning is because this is where we should be in light of all that takes place here week by week. Okay, verse 32, they were on their way up to Jerusalem, this would be Jesus, well you'll see this in a minute, and the disciples and a few others, with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then... James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Quite a question. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked. Quite a response. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup and I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. Now we're going to tackle these verses uh, next time, but just to let you know. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many." Amen. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's take a moment and let's pray and ask God for his help. Father, with our Bibles open before us, we we do humble ourselves greatly before your throne of grace and power that we might be given both as your word is preached. Father, everything at this moment of lasting value depends entirely on you. You are essential, I am not. Therefore, please be pleased to give what is desperately needed as your word is preached and listened to for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, this week I read two terrific essays, for me very timely essays. One had the title, Hold On to Your Seats, 
the dangers of non-Christocentric preaching, then a colon, moralistic sermons. The second had the title, the dangers of non-Christocentric preaching, again a colon, a displaced gospel. Now, admittedly, the title is probably not helpful to most of you. Uh, they were reaching, um, or excuse me, they were reacting to the kind of do-good uh, preaching, the do-better preaching that is so low with so no cross, no Jesus, no relying on his grace and everything. And as you hear those titles, some of you might be saying, Jeepers Joe, you really, you really need to get a life. Is that what you do with your free time? Yes, it is. And I do need to get a life, but we'll worry about that later. The content was amazingly helpful. Because at the heart of each of those essays, this was the message. Listen carefully, because this is so important. The work of the Holy Spirit, the divine author of the Bible, the Holy Spirit which empowers authentic Christian preaching and authentic Christian ministry is such that through the preaching of Jesus Christ from the Bible, the Spirit enables us to see our sins so clearly that we realize that the only remedy is to cast ourselves on the mercy of God, driving us away from any um, form of self-defense, self-justification, or even pride, self-flattery. Driving us to Christ, the sufficiency of his grace given in Christ at the cross. Therein, we embrace the good news as it is. Good news that Jesus alone has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. In other words, as we hear the sermon, somewhere along the way, we're saying, oh, wretched person that I am, who's going to rescue me from this body of death? And then we finish it out. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead of, oh, I thank God that I'm not like other men and women as the Pharisees would do, then they would behave accordingly. Because this is what we need to know. No matter how good we become, and I hope we're all becoming good, our goodness will never be enough. Never be enough to satisfy God. Only Jesus could do that. Therefore, it is never, our goodness is never to be the foundation, the basis, the essence of our relationship with God. Trying to earn God's favor, trying to earn God's love by our works is akin to how by nature humans treat each other. And there's nothing divine about that. Now we may live and think like it is like the Pharisees or we may have kind of like a a merit-based relationship with others where if you're scratching my back, then I'll scratch yours and everything will be well. But that's not grace. Here's grace, Romans 5. While we were yet sinners... Right in the middle of our open rebellion to God, right in front of a holy God, right in the thick of our sin, God said, I love you. I'm going to send my son Jesus to pay your debt for you. I'm sending my son so you can know my forgiveness. That's the doctrine of atonement. You can have my righteousness, the doctrine of justification. Then with a new heart, the doctrine of sanctification, let's begin the work together of your new life. Because you're still going to battle with old sins Sometimes you're going to win. Sometimes you're going to lose. But you're in Christ. So you're safe. That is fundamental. Not only to the Christian life, but to authentic Christian preaching. Let me just quote a couple of quick things from these two articles, essays. He said, if we fed them a steady diet of moralistic preaching, so that they're taught to be kind, forgiving, loving, good husbands and wives, all good things, of course. But where is the theological foundation For such, where's the cross? Is it completely neglected? They go on. The scriptures are full of moral instruction. 
an ethical exhortation, but the ground and motivation is of all of it is found in the mercy of Jesus Christ and in the power of Jesus Christ. One more line. This is a quote from Goldsworthy. Goldsworthy correctly suggests that the reason why so many like that kind of moralistic, challenging, do-better preaching, why it's so prevalent and popular is because we're all legalists at heart. And so we like to hear that. So what I want to say, and the reason why I go down this line, is the danger in a text like this that we just read is to go hyper. You see this in your Bible, verse 43. To go hyper on verse 43, whoever wants to be first must be slave and all. In essence, here's your three-point sermon. Telling everyone, point number one, you need to try harder. Point number two, what's the matter to you? You've got to try even harder. Point number three, really, 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 really try harder. Leaving out completely the good intent of the good news of the gospel, which is the message of the cross, which tells me that Jesus has done verse 43 and following perfectly on our behalf. Now, go live in the light of verse 43. Go live in that truth, not on your own power, but in the power of Christ. Because you understand as you're thinking these things through, the disciples have been with Jesus for three years now. This is the last week of his life. And even with that kind of access to Christ and that kind of instruction, personal instruction from Christ, they be, continue to think and behave miserably. And I ask you, is it the teacher's fault? Is it the teacher's fault? So verse 43 is to be our reality. This is where Jesus will take us. It's not a way to live. It's the way to live as a follower of Christ. However, verse 33, you see it there as Jesus begins to speak of his death and his resurrection, that is necessity. That is their only hope in life and in death. Because you see, little ones, if you don't have verse 33 and following, the death and resurrection of Jesus, then verse 43 is just another religion, right? Do better, try harder kind of talk. In a phrase, what it is, and not to be technical, it's liberal theology. Because what liberal theology has is no cross at all. There's not, no virgin birth. There, there is no resurrection, they're just a nice Jesus telling people to be really, really nice as they move along in the years. And it's human power. And human power's driving force will always be human pride. That's what we're going to find out in James and John. Human pride just, being, pride just being fed. So in that setting, when you're listening to that kind of sermon, either you can say, yes, yes, I can do it. Yes, yes, I want to do it. I want to be a cut above everybody else, right? Or you say, oh, I can't do it because most Christians are tenderhearted. They, I'll never do it. I'm done failing just like everything else in my life. Here I go again failing. When true Christian maturity, listen carefully, true Christian maturity glories in the gospel, puts no confidence in the flesh at all. It forgets what is behind them and presses forward to what's ahead. And, and when you don't do that, this is what you'll do. You'll shove the gospel in a corner and you can rely on it and enjoy it, usually only in two situations, during the holidays or when you really, really, really have messed up and your dead works are just dead. And you have to, if you would, crawl to the cross to seek your forgiveness. You see, in those settings, God's grace is not abounding and the cross is emptied of its power. 
Now, when you think about power, as you look at these verses, when it comes to power, this is, <laughs> this is an, as intense as it can get. Power is going to be presented to us in two unreconcilable, strikingly different ways. And what is taking place here is a power play. And in this power play, someone, verse 34, you see it there? Someone's going to die. That's as intense as power gets when you start killing people. So if your Bible is open, you'll see verse 32. They are on their way to Jerusalem, the capital city. The Jewish authorities are in the capital city, the Roman authorities as well. Mark tells us, verse 32, Jesus was leading the way and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Here's the question. Why were the disciples astonished and why were the followers afraid? Well, they knew what happens when you go into the capital city saying the things that Jesus has been saying and doing the things that Jesus has been doing. I mean, the entire ministry of Jesus was subversive. He, he would either unite people or he would divide people. It seemed like every time Jesus opened his mouth to speak, Or he used his power to heal. He was clashing with the religious authorities of his day, right? Jesus, you can't do that. Jesus, you can't say that. Jesus, who gave you the authority to do what you're doing and saying what you're saying? That's why the disciples were astonished. And that's why the followers were afraid. Because they know what Jesus was heading into. They know he was going to Jerusalem to meet his death. Because it seemed like all of God's prophets, whenever they went to Jerusalem, what happened? They lost their life. Even Jesus said that in Matthew 23. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those whom God has sent to you. So if you're a prophet and you're a prophet of God and you head in Jerusalem, kiss your life goodbye. Jesus knows that. So he knows that. And you can see this in your Bible. He takes the 12 aside and he tells them a very concise But with startling detail, in fact, so much detail that liberal scholarship says there's no way this happened. There's no way Jesus predicted his death this way. This was an add-in, right? It happened after the fact. So the gospel writer Mark added this later on after it already happened. Nevertheless, verse 33, this is what Jesus tells them. We're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And by the way, the mocking and the spitting and the flogging, uh, that usually didn't happen in a crucifixion, a normal crucifixion. And of course, that's what man's power can do. It kills people, right? Man's power kills people who oppose them. Very common, right? People we do not like, we, we set ourselves against. So think of this. In the previous century, century 20, 165 million people died from some form of human violence. That's roughly 4,500 people a day were overpowered by someone else who did not like them to their death. Just just think of that. It's horrible. Now, a good question a person who's unfamiliar with the Bible might ask is something like this. Okay, why do these authorities want to kill Jesus? Why? He's religious. They're religious. What's going on? Why is there a conflict? Well, part of the answer is in that one little phrase, verse 33, that Jesus uses of himself, the son of man. Okay, you see it there? That's why they want to kill him. Because Jesus by using the phrase son of man, was saying, I am God's promised king who is coming to God's world. That's who I am. I am God's promised king who is coming to God's world. Now we need to stop, right? Can I ask you? 
Do you think that Jesus is promised, God's promised king who has come into God's world? Right? Is Jesus God's promised king who has come into God's world? Who do you think Jesus is? That's the biggest question of our life, isn't it? Who is Jesus? Is he your king or the cabana boy? Right? Just there for us. Or he's, is he just like a good moral teacher? Follow Jesus. You know, he'll get you things right, straighten everything out in your life. It's just great. Let's try to work out the answer. Three points. Number one, his identity. And what we're told in the last six words, which I didn't read purposely, four words in Greek, verse 34 will help us. Last six words, three days later he will rise. Now, if that is true, okay, if that is true, when it comes then to the identity of Jesus, this tells me that Jesus holds the future. All of it. This tells me that he holds the future because he has defeated death. So when I visit people in light of the death of a loved one and they ask me about death and I tell them this, that no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, you need to put your hand in the hand of Jesus. He's defeated death. He's the only one. He alone holds the future. He alone, Jesus, is your only hope in life and in death. And if Jesus then is God's promised king who's defeated death and holds a future, when it comes to the nature of his power, How does Jesus exercise his power? Is he a tyrant, verse 42, like the Gentile rulers? Or does he will to win my heart? Which one? Which one? Is he a tyrant or does he will to win my heart? If you're a Christian, I hope you know the answer to that, right? He wills to win our heart. And if he has our heart, we should ask ourselves, am I lost in wonder and praise of the fact that he does have my heart? Am I just like so glad that Jesus holds a future? Am I so glad about that? That's the only thing that brings me any form of security about my future. Jesus holds it. Or do I need something else? And do I want to obey him? And do I want to serve him in all, all in, hard in, because he has my heart? You know, not to pay for my sins, not for extra credit, not to shine a little brighter around here but because Jesus has my heart. As my children grow older, one of the unexpected joys, and I bet that if you have adult kids, you you know what I'm about to say. One of the unexpected joys is that when I give them hugs, it means more now than ever before. And I'm glad that's true. Forgive me, this is just me, that it seems like when I hug my adult kids, it's like electricity, just pulsating when we hug. Why is that? Well, it's because you're a little weird. Okay, I get that. (laughs) It's because they have my heart, right? They have my heart. Does Jesus have your heart? Does he? The singer Paul McCartney, after the Beatles broke up, he released a song, which later he re-released with the band that he formed called the Wings. Wings, just Wings. This is the line of the song. It says this, maybe I'm amazed at the way you love me all the time. You take out the first word, and that is a good gospel line. Jesus, I'm amazed at the way that you love me all the time. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a preacher from a previous generation, he, he was said, this was said by his daughter. Dad was always amazed that God saved him from his sins his whole life. Right, Jesus, I, I, know you, I know your identity. I know you're God's promised king. Send it to God's world. 
Jesus, I know that you have power over death. Jesus, I know you hold the future. And Jesus, I know that you know me, right? Not like people around me know me. You know me, me. The, the darker me. You know how dark I can be. And yet, Jesus, I am amazed at the way that you love me all the time. Because you have my heart. That's gospel love. That's good news. The bad news is that Jesus would like to put me in the corner all the time. But I just missed the mark at all. This big, a little big. Now, interestingly here in Mark's gospel, the religious authorities, they do think Jesus is God's king that has come into God's world. They've seen him live. They've heard his teaching. They've seen his miracles. They've heard Jesus speak a new life the dead receive. They know who he is, but their heart is not his. And that's why they want him dead. How do I know all that? Well, part of the way that I know that is if you look at chapter 12, a little ahead, but we'll get there eventually. Jesus tells us parable of the tenants. And the parable goes something like this. There was a man who had a vineyard. He owned it. He rents the vineyard out and he sends his son to collect the rent, right? The tenants know who the son is. They know who his dad is. And they say, let's kill the son and let's keep the vineyard for ourselves. Translation, Jesus is saying, the religious authorities, you know me, you know me. That's why you want to kill me. Because the religious authorities are pulling a power play here. They don't want to be tenants. They want to be owners. They do not want to serve. They want to sit in the seats of power and authority. And they want to call the shots. They want to be served. Right? How can I help you, sir? What can I do for you today, sir? You're looking terrific today, sir. No one like you. What can I do for you? As a result... They cannot handle the truth about Jesus because they cannot stand the idea of losing their power and control. Again, their conclusion, let's get rid of Jesus. So they shut themselves off from the identity of Jesus because they want to keep their power and control. They know that if Jesus is God's king who has come into God's world, that he's going to change everything. They're going to lose their power. They're going to lose their control. They're going to lose their high seats. And they do not want to lose their power. They do not want to lose their control. By nature, no one does. And we definitely don't want to lose our seats of authority. Therefore, again, Jesus must die. Now, loved ones, maybe some of us here, we can identify in some way with these religious leaders. Maybe you know who Jesus is. You've learned whole bowlfuls of who Jesus is. But you shut the door to your life from Jesus. You will not have him. You will not have him as the one who rules and reigns in the totality of your life. Maybe you're afraid. You're afraid of losing your power. You're afraid of losing your control. And you know, so many people reject Jesus because of that. They know who he is. On one level, they kind of like him, but they don't want to give up power. And they don't want to give up control. And I want to tell you this. This is what I have to tell you. There's a day of judgment coming. No one can avoid it. And that day, either before that day, we can give up our power and control. We can do it now and enjoy Christ forever and ever, world without end. Or we can wait until the judgment when Jesus will say to us, give me all your power and give me all your control now. And he can do that because Jesus has all authority. And he has all power. 
And then, for all eternity, rightly, because we're all guilty, we will be under the wrath of God. Eternal punishment will be our lot. Judgment day. It's going to bear that out. I want you to think on that because it's not easy to say. But I'm a servant of Jesus. So I'm commanded to say it. That's number one. His identity. Jesus is the son of man. God's promised king sent into God's world. He's defeated death. He holds a future. Everyone will stand at the day of judgment in front of Jesus. Number two is authority, right? Now, remarkably, there is more insight into the power that we need to, under, that we need to understand from these verses. So we'll take a consideration of the disciples, verse 35. And what I want you to see is here it is. This is a mirror to all of us on the subject of power. These verses are deeply humbling, right? They're a mirror to us. So as Jesus gives the details of his death, it's a brutal death. Surely as Jesus speaks on this, the disciples who've been with Jesus for three years now, so they've been cared for by Jesus, they've been carried by Jesus, they've learned from Jesus, they've seen his holiness, they've seen his love, they've embraced on some level both. Day by day, Jesus said the right thing and did the right thing all the time, right before their eyes. You would think on some level they would have a mixture of sadness, maybe some confusion, maybe awe, and maybe some questions. But not the question that James and John, uh, the sons of Debedee, will lay down. Do you see it there? Verse 35, and you know, before we lower the boom, remember that's a mirror to us. We look in that text and we see ourselves. Now think with me. I mean, it, would, it goes something like this. How dare I ever sin knowing that Jesus had to die because of my sin? How dare I ever sin? But do I? Yes. It's a bloody shame. Teacher, verse 35, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Total power play right there, right? Verse 36, Jesus replies very graciously, what do you want me to do for you? Okay, here we go. Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. So remember, all that they heard about Jesus All that they've heard about Jesus. And you know, this is the third time Jesus has gone down this route. This is the third time that he has spoken to them about his death. They just skip over the cross and they go right for the crown. Right? Skip over the cross, right for the crown. All they want is power. They're saying, Jesus, look, we're we're trying to get ahead here in life. So give us some of the best seats in the house. Jesus, you can have one, of course, because you're Jesus. But I want one on the right, one on the left. One of the gospel writers tells us that their mother was leading the charge, right? No surprise, good Jewish mother, just like a good Italian mother, right? My boys are good boys, Jesus. They deserve the best, Jesus. You give them the good seats, Jesus. Today, I'm going to call my dad, Lord willing, for Father's Day. And my mom will get on the phone, and I'll give you all the money in my pocket if she doesn't say, Joe, you're such a good boy. You're just a good boy every time. You're a good boy. Well, mom, like, you should have seen me last week. I was not a good boy. She's like, no, Joe, you're a good boy. That's what mothers do. That's what mothers do. This is what their mother is doing. And by the way, when you think about having the best seats in the house, some people always need those seats, don't they? Some people always need to be in front of things. I mean, nothing shows our pride quite as much as when we go to a party or a a wedding reception, which we have no significance at all, right? And we're looking for our table number. Let me give you a word of advice. Don't start at table number one uh, because you'll probably have to work down. Start at table number 30 and and work your way up. 
right? Far less painful. Far, far less painful. So the two disciples, no loyalty to Jesus at all. This is just raw ambition. This is a power play. Calvin on this, it's a bright mirror of human vanity, right? In a thousand different ways, we want to make ourselves the center of the universe. And in response to this, Jesus heading to Jerusalem to die, he makes it completely clear that those who are going to follow him, they got to choose between two ways to live two value systems. And there is absolutely no way to harmonize in any way these two different ways of life. So what are they? Well, the first choice is verse 35, the me first way. Me first. I want you to do for me whatever I ask you. Power play, me first. The other way, verse 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served. Right? This is the Son of God, Son of Man, God's King in God's world. He didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So it's two completely different ways to live. Now, it's important that we say this. Jesus didn't serve because the conditions of his service was absolutely to his liking, right? Everybody was doing right. Everybody was doing good. So he decided, hey, they deserve my service. No, Jesus steps into a world filled with sinners. And in this case, sinners who just want to use him. So he has a choice to make. Is it going to be me first, or am I going to do my Father's will and come to serve? Right? So here's the two ways. Will I choose a life of self-seeking or a life of self-sacrifice? A life of self-seeking, which, okay, there might be some reward now, but it's all going to pass away. Or a life of self-sacrifice with the possibility of no reward on earth, but all your good rewards in heaven. Which one? And only you know which one you're living now, right? Do you live like a king or like a slave? And if I choose self-seeking, this is what I should know. I will not need any help from God to be selfish. That's an easy one. But if I choose self-sacrifice, then I'm going to need divine help. I'm going to need a change starting right in here. So James and John may have called Jesus teacher in verse 35, but they are disobeying Jesus' most basic teaching. Service, a slave to all. All people. Status, no. Authority, no. Glory, power, no. Not right now. But these guys speak with a different voice. They breathe a different spirit. They are fired by a different ambition, and they want a life with a different conclusion than their master. Crown, now, no cross. Indeed, if you think about it, what they really want was what the rich young ruler had. Remember him in the early part of chapter 10? They want power, and they want position, and they want the fruit of such things, right? They're behaving like him, right? Remember when he, he was asked by Jesus, Jesus gave him the law, and he's like, oh yeah, I've been doing that since I was a kid. Jesus asked these two boys, hey, are you going to be able to go through the baptism I'm going to go through? Are you going to be able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Oh, yeah, Jesus, no brainer. We can do it. Easy. No problem. And frankly, they're thinking like the chief priest and the teachers of law. They're thinking like unconverted people. They want power and glory. And therefore, James and John, very pragmatic, right? They're thinking about their future. And they think that there's going to be some kind of unholy power grab. And so they're simply moving ahead before the rest of the bunch, right? And they want to get in the front of the line and get the best seats in the house. 
And remember, this isn't the first time. In chapter 9, Jesus tells them about his death and resurrection. The disciples respond by spending the whole afternoon talking about who's the greatest. (laughs) It's almost laughable. It wasn't so sad, right? And here, James and John are going to put themselves forward thinking that they are the greatest, even in the company of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine having that conversation in front of Jesus Christ? Nietzsche. I'm going to quote from Nietzsche. Greatness is being singled out. That's what they wanted. You're thinking about the crowds, right? And there's a little parade, and they, there's Jesus in the middle, but they're on the right, and they're on the left, and the people are going to see me in the front. It's going to be so great in my heart. Get that little, ooh. Fame, authority, recognition, a voice. I don't know where you are in all this, but I know where I am. It's not always good. And as we think about power, And where it actually comes from, could it be, and I'm just asking, could this room be filled with James and John? I find it easy to identify with them, do you? I mean, it's so easy, even in the church, to find one's self-worth pinned to the pecking order, right? So I'm going to give my time, and I'm going to give my energy, and I'm going to give my money and devotion to things, just to get my image boosted up a little bit. Go public a little bit, right? Just to get the image, just kind of boost, right? Left seat. Anything to give the appearance like, wow, they really got it going on. And if Jesus asked you the question, what do you want me to do for you? What would you ask? What would you say? Would you say, I just need mercy? Or would you say like James and John, well, you know what? I just, life's kind of hard. A little bit of power, a little bit of respect, a little bit of money, a little bit of security, a little bit of greatness. Just a pinch, Jesus. Give me all the power tools that I need to go down that route. Because I think that those things have the capacity to deliver me from me. And you know, that's why so many people walk away from Jesus. They don't want Jesus to rule his life, their life. There's a book that I read a long time ago. It's called Fools Rush In, page 77. It's a paperback book, the one that I have. And it's an autobiography of a lady named Anthea Turner. And this is what she says. She, she's just returning from a Whitney Houston concert. And she said, when Whitney sang the line, learning to love yourself is the greatest love of all, I nearly cried. She was spot on. Now, at that point, I took the book and I tried to bite it. (laughs) And I started talking to the book. That is not the greatest love of all. That is not the greatest love of all. Learning to love yourself, that is what James and John were doing. The greatest love of all is the way of the cross. And the way of the cross is utterly incompatible with self-seeking on any level. Verse 45, for even the Son of Man, the second person of the Trinity, did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus gave away his life. Jesus gave away his status. He relinquished all of his rights. Yes, he's the Son of Man. Yes, all creation belongs to him. Yes, we breathe because Jesus gives us permission. But by contrast, right, he makes himself nothing. This is Philippians 2. He sets aside everything. He becomes a man. He bows to death, a criminal's death, naked on a cross. What's the shame in that? And it was all his choice. In Philippians 2, it's all written in the reflexive in Greek. He did it to himself. He chose equality with God, something to be grasped. He chose himself to humble himself. He chose to wash his disciples' feet. He chose Gethsemane. He chose the glory of God and the welfare of others. He chose to identify with swindlers, tax collectors, prostitutes, and sinners. 
He chooses the cross. He chooses to pay for our sin. He chooses to absorb God's anger. He chooses not to get hung up on his rights. He chooses to let all his power go that he might die. And he does this. He does this. That presents us with a staggering choice. This is the difference between self-seeking, honor, glory, and prestige for ourselves, or self-sacrifice in the footsteps and service of God and the service of others. And we have to choose. We have to choose. And please don't think this way. Okay, you know what? I've done that for about 25 years, so that box is checked. Right? I'm going to let someone else take my shift. Don't think that way. Right to the death. Right to the death. If you want to see the greatness of Jesus, it's seen in his service. I mean, think about it right now. Let's get some theology in us. Right now, what is Jesus doing? Right now, Jesus is in heaven serving us. He's interceding for us right now. He's preparing a place for us right now. He, he, ha, he is right. This is Hebrews 1. Right now, he is sustaining this world by his powerful word. So Jesus is not a spirit, right? He's embodied. And his body is at work in heaven on our behalf, right? So here's a good one. Do you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit? You want to be filled with the Holy Spirit and enjoy that privilege? Then serve, serve, serve forever and ever world without end. That's Jesus, second person of the Trinity. John's gospel says that he was filled with the Spirit without limit. Wow. Wow, finally and briefly, because we need to go, don't we? Number three is remedy, right? So his identity, he's son of man, God's king sent into God's world, the only way to God. His authority is expressed in service, a kind of breaking my back for you service, giving his life for you service, still in heaven right now working on our behalf. What's his remedy? Well, you see it there. There's only two ways to live. Both have to do with power, right? James and John, personal power, Their whole life is set to themselves, secure those things, right? And don't forget, they're religious, guys. Don't forget, this isn't kind of a sex, drugs, and rock and roll kind of life that James and John are living. They're religious, and they still want this, right? They want to sit, verse 37, with Jesus in his glory. That's the one. The other is the remedy. Let Jesus' life serve you. So that you can serve others. Here's what I want to end. I want to say, let him serve you. Right? This is our question this Sunday. So so simple. Will you be served by Jesus? Will you be served by Jesus? Will you let his death serve you as a final payment for your sin? Will you let his way, the way of the cross, serve you and become your way too? Will you bow to the one? Now listen carefully because I'm not exactly sure if this is theologically correct, but will you bow to the one who came to serve you, who who in essence bowed down to you? Will you bow to that one? There was not one part of Jesus' life where he willingly exalted himself. Not one part. He humbled himself in his birth, in his life, in his death. Birth. Eternal son of God, he becomes a cell, becomes a fetus, a baby, born not in a great house, but of a poor virgin. Not in a stately palace, but in a stable. No cradle, a feeding box. That's his birth, his life. He put himself through torment and conflict, being tempted by the devil at levels we will never, ever know. He endures 
accusations, criticism, contradictions of what he said, physical abuse of, of wicked men, mere men. Jesus could have blinked and they'd have been like dust. He knew hunger, thirst, weariness, and the like. He bore our grief. He, he, he bore sorrow that would break a billion hearts. Finally, in his death, right? He humbled himself. He's betrayed by Judas. He's arrested by officers. He's denied by Peter. He's demanded by his closest friends. Verse 34, mocked on, spat on, whipped, and killed. And at the ninth hour, what does he cry out? Where are you, God? Right? Where are you? Where are you? Why does he have to say that? Is he a sinner? No. He had to say that because he was separated from God for a time because of our sin. What a servant this Jesus is. And this tells me something so simple that everybody who humbles themselves and cries out for mercy from Jesus will get it. Every time. Ephesians 1.7, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of of sins. That's the height of God's mercy, the forgiveness of sins. If you're a Christian, your sins are forgiven. And then he says, okay, I want you to learn from me. I'm going to teach you how to be humble. Let this mind be in you. 1 Peter 4, 1, for as much as Christ has suffered for you, arm yourself with the same attitude. Hmm. Jesus is our only remedy. Will you let Jesus Christ serve you today? Will you? Today, tomorrow, and forevermore. No hope without him. Let me read a quote. We'll pray and we'll be done, okay? This comes from Richard Baxter, a Puritan preacher. Listen to what he says. Is it a small thing in your eyes to be loved by God? To be the son, the daughter, the spouse, the the love and the delight of the king of glory? Christian, believe this and think about this you will be eternally embraced in the arms of the love which from everlasting will extend to everlasting. The love which brought the Son of God's love from heaven to earth, from earth to the cross, from the cross to the grave, from the grave to glory, that love which was weary and hungry and tempted and scorned and scourged and buffeted and spat on and crucified and pierced, fasted, prayed, taught, healed, wept, sweated, blood, bled, died for you, that love will eternally embrace you both now and forevermore. I got to ask the question again, will you be served by Jesus? Will you be served by Jesus? Let's pray together. Thank you for your attention this morning. Gracious God and Father, maybe some people are saying, you know what, I'm weaker and more sinful than I've ever believed. But I know that through Jesus, I am more loved and accepted than I ever dared to hope. If that's you, Jesus Christ embraces you this morning. You call out to him in repentance and faith, and you'll receive eternal life. You'll become part of the family of God. You'll live in the love of God forever and ever, world without end. You'll know his righteousness, and you'll know his peace You'll know his care, and you'll know his love. And at the judgment day, you'll be just fine. All because of Jesus. All because of Jesus. Father, may you have mercy on this congregation as we move along this day and this week. May the fathers of this congregation and the gentlemen as well, may they know your blessing and peace over the day. 
May you carry us through the week so that we will say yes to what is right and no to what is wrong. May we be people filled with grace, treating and thinking of others through grace and not through their merit or through their works. And may may we know your blessing because sometimes this world is really tough to live in and we need help, big help. And Father, may you be pleased to give us that help for the glory of your name and for the good of the honor and praise of Jesus Christ. Now may your love and your grace and your Holy Spirit be ours both now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. I'm going to stay up here a while if you have a question or two.